Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. You have your Bibles today. I want to ask you to take them and open them with me to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17, as we open God's word together today, we begin a brand new series of sermons over the next four weeks, simply entitled, In God We Trust. In God We Trust. I have a very simple question to ask you this morning and really in the coming weeks, and that question is this. Do you truly trust in God. Do you truly trust in God? The fact is, is that in life we face trials and circumstances, adversities, mountains, valleys, unknowns all along the way. We know we should trust in God, but the question is, do we? In God we trust. That is not a new phrase to us. In fact, if you were to look at the motto of the United States of America, you would see that it literally is, in God we trust. It is printed on our currency. It is quoted by our politicians. It is preached in our pulpits. It is something that we have heard all about. And yet the question then becomes for us this morning is not is it a slogan and not is it on our currency and not is it preached, but where the rubber meets the road in our lives, do we truly trust in God? When life is hard, when things go differently than we expected or planned, when changes come suddenly, when bad news comes our way, when discouragement creeps in, when depression hovers like a cloud, when hope seems lost, do we truly trust in God? The fact of the matter is, is that I don't have to convince you of this. You can simply turn on the news or open the paper or whatever resource you want to look at to know that we live in a very challenging time in our culture. Much of what is happening in the world today is disheartening, it is unsettling, it is uh, heartbreaking as we look and see all that's going on in the world. But the fact is, for many of us, we don't even have to look in the world around us. We can look at our own neighborhood, we can look in our own homes, and if we're honest about it, we can even look in our own hearts and recognize that there's a major battle, a major division that's taking place. For the believer, this shouldn't surprise us. For a child of God, this shouldn't shock us. For a child of God, this shouldn't bring us to terror because the Bible tells us that God warned us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. He says, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, I realize that we're all different ages and life stages represented, but I would say to you this morning that never in my life have I seen such a difficult time as some of the challenges that we're facing today. Never in my life has there been so much chaos and confusion, destruction and division as what we see today. We see the public divide in the context of our government leaders. We see the chaos in the streets of many of our larger cities. We see the re-envisioning of our public protectors. We see an all-out attack against the church and upon Christian values. And in the midst of it all, we need to be reminded where the source of the battle really is. 
The Bible says that we have an enemy in Satan who's the thief who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But believers, we must be encouraged. Even in the midst of the cultural divide and all the confusion, the Bible tells us that greater is he who is in us, greater is the Holy Spirit of God in us, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So we need not be afraid, we need not panic, even in the midst of a pandemic, even in the midst of a government overreach, even in the midst of political manipulation, we must not panic or fear. We must stand firm and our trust in God. My hope and prayer this morning is that we will leave here today and in the coming weeks with an absolute clear resolve to say this, no matter what happens in the world around me, no matter what happens in my world, I will trust in God. I love the way the psalmist says it in Psalm 46, verses one through three. The psalmist says it this way. He says, God is our refuge and strength. Would you just say that with me again? God is our refuge and strength, but he continues a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. I love this statement. Though the earth should change, And though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, pause for a moment, could you imagine the panic that would happen in our community if we walked outside of this building in about 45 minutes to an hour and all of a sudden the entire mountain range of Massanutten had completely crumbled to the ground? Could you imagine the panic that would ensue in our community? Though the mountains should crumble into the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, Selah, what's the psalmist saying? He's saying, listen, my hope is not in the mountains. My hope is not in the government. My hope is not in the world around me. My hope is in God who is our refuge and strength. That's why twice in that psalm, the chorus ends with this statement in verses seven and 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. In other words, if you know the living, true, almighty God of heaven, you have nothing to fear and nothing to flee. You can stand firm in your trust in God. We learned that greatly in 1 Kings chapter 17 through 1 Kings chapter 19. Today, as we look at this series, In God We Trust, we're going to learn from a life of a man by the name of Elijah. Now, this name is not unfamiliar to most of us. In fact, many of you, you've been to church before, perhaps, and you've heard about this prophet of God named Elijah. Some of you were here a month ago when Brother Richard Seafried preached a message. In one sermon, he preached 1 Kings 17 to 1 Kings 19 about this man by the name of Elijah. And I want you to know this morning, as I begin this series and we study these chapters in a little closer detail, please know my preaching upon that is not in any way, shape, or form a criticism to the message that was preached a month ago, but instead, it's a building upon it. I will never forget when I was about 16 years old, I had already answered God's call to preach in my life. And up to that point, I had only preached in my home church. I grew up in a Baptist church in Montgomery, Alabama. And I remember the first time I was invited to preach at a different church, a Pentecostal church. And I was quite excited about the opportunity and I remember going to that church and pretty quickly I learned that uh, those in a Pentecostal background talk a little bit more than a Baptist does in a church service. And, and so I would preach and I mean, there were people, amen and hallelujah and praise the Lord. And sometimes they were saying things I wasn't 100% sure what they were saying, but they were praising the Lord. But I will never forget preaching and all of a sudden the lady say, Park it there, preacher. 
park it there. And it literally, I, 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 I paused and I said, excuse me. She said, stay right there, preacher, stay right there. And what she was saying that day was, this is from God and we need to hear it. First Kings chapter 17 through 19, a month ago, as you were gathered here together and Brother Richard Seafried was preaching God's word, my family and I were literally driving on vacation. And I'm so thankful for our media and production team and the technology that we have. I literally had the service on my cell phone and I had it in the dash of my vehicle and we were driving on our vacation and I was listening to that message. And without a doubt from God, without a doubt in my mind, God used that message to so greatly minister to me and to challenge me that literally I felt like God was saying to all of us as a church, it's time to park here for a moment. There are some things that God wants us to see. Well, what does God want us to see about trusting in him? I want you to look at 1 Kings 17. If you're able, I want to ask you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. We're going to see two key truths about trusting to this morning, trusting God's plan. Look at the scripture with me. The Bible says, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord came to him saying, go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. Incredible miracle of God in this moment. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens bought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink From the brook, simple statement, verse seven. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning and for the time that we have together today. God, I thank you that even in the midst of trying times, in the midst of uncertain moments, to know that you are God and that you are faithful and that you are in control of all things. And so God, I pray today that you would help us to look to you and to trust you even when your plans seem very different than our hopes, our expectations, or anything that we would have ever thought of in the process. God, today, would you draw each of us to a close and vibrant relationship with you? And we'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. Trusting God's plan. 1 Kings chapter 17, we are very suddenly and unexpectedly introduced to a man by the name simply of Elijah. We're simply told of him that he is Elijah the Tishbite, which means he was from a small town known as Tishba. There's not a lot of history there. There's not a lot of significance of things that we need to know. And literally, there's not a lot of significance about his background that God uh, chooses to tell us about. It's almost as if God drops Elijah into the pages of scripture from out of absolutely nowhere. But God does so because just like for each of our own lives, God had a unique plan and purpose for Elijah's life. And as we see this plan unfold, I want you to know, this didn't all unfold the way that Elijah thought it would or the way that he thought it should. But in the midst of it all, God did an incredible work in his life and through his life. More than anything, we learn about Elijah, the culture in which he lived. The Bible tells us a great deal about the world that Elijah lived in in that moment. The fact, the fact the Bible tells us that the king at that time was a man by the name of King Ahab and his wife was Queen Jezebel. The, the Bible tells us an interesting statement about King Ahab. If you want to look at the previous chapter, 1 Kings 16, verse 33, how would you like to be remembered for this in verse 33? 
The Bible says, Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. In other words, Ahab up to this moment was the most wicked king that Israel had ever had. How would you like that to be the way that you are remembered? That's the day in which Elijah lived. And that's saying a lot. The king before uh, King Ahab was known for his great compromise and how he led the people of God to worship all sorts of pagan idols. The king before him had a massive massacre throughout the land and he was known for his cruelty and his violence. And yet in the midst of this lineage of kings, God looks at Ahab and he says, the most wicked king that Israel has ever had is right here in King Ahab. It's this very king that God raises up Elijah to confront in 1 Kings 17. This morning, I want you to see two things about trusting God's plan. They're simple, but if we will apply them, they are profound. The first thing I want you to see this morning simply is this, is what it demands. What does trusting God demand in our life today? Now, we can all say, I trust in God. Every single one of us can probably say it, and we can say it easily and flippantly and think nothing of it. But when the rubber meets the road, and when crisis comes, and when hardship takes place, and confusion and calamity surrounds us everywhere we look, the question then is this, is it more than a statement, or is it truly our life? Is it truly where we stand? Do we trust in God? Because to do so demands several things of us. First, it demands great conviction. Elijah's in a moment in 1 Kings chapter 17, frankly, where in order to trust God and do what God is calling him to do, it demanded a great conviction of him. The Bible says in 1 Kings 17, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, he said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel is before whom I stand, surely there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Think for just a moment the conviction that this required of Elijah. Ahab was the most wicked king they'd ever had. Ahab, we begin to understand later on in the scripture as it unfolds in the coming weeks, we begin to recognize with his connection with Jezebel, they became a violent, oppressive, aggressive leaders in the land. We'll learn here in the coming chapters about how they sent decrees to literally get rid of all the prophets of God. We'll learn later in the context of 1 Kings of, of the sacrifices that they made, even of children. It was a cruel and aggressive and wicked reign. And yet it's this very person that God raises up Elijah and says, go confront him. Now, I don't know about you this morning, but it's not easy to confront wrong. Let me ask you a question. How easy is it for you to confront wrongs and issues within your family? Not very easy, I would imagine. How easy is it for you to confront wrongs and issues with your neighbors across the street? Not very easy, I would imagine. But in this case, God looks at Elijah and says, Elijah, I want you to go to the most wicked, violent, vulgar, and cruel leader of the day and say, thus says the Lord. And Elijah doesn't hesitate. He immediately goes to Ahab. How does he do that? He does that because he has a conviction about God. I want you to consider for a moment three convictions that he had that we need to have in our own life if we're gonna trust God today. The first is he believed that the living God of heaven was with him in the work. Notice what the scripture says. He stood before Ahab and he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel is before whom I stand. Now, don't miss this. Brother Richard did a wonderful job preaching this a month ago. What's happening in this moment is this. Elijah understands 
the position that Ahab is in. Elijah understands the cruelty that's there. He understands the risk that's involved. He knows this could cost him his life. But the reason he's able to persevere is this. His eyes were not focused on man. His eyes were focused on God. His eyes were not focused on the consequence. His eyes were focused on who was in charge. So when he stood before that earthly king, he basically said to the king, I might be in your presence, but I'm standing before the living, almighty, all-powerful God of heaven. This is a picture, if you will, in the same way that's illustrated to us by David and Goliath. When David stood before that giant, Goliath came with his spear and his sword and his weapons of war. And the Bible says that David looked at him and he said, you've come to me with a spear and with a sword, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the name of the Lord of all the armies, that he has all power and all authority. And on this day, you will fall. That same faith, that same conviction that we see evident in David, we see evident in Elijah as he went, believing that the living God of heaven was with him in the work. But not only did he have that conviction, he also had a conviction that God's word was true. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you really believe that God's word is true? Even when it seems like you know God's promise, you know what he said, but what you're experiencing in the moment seems to conflict with that? Even when it seems that God has promised good and what you're going through isn't so good, do you truly believe God's word? Elijah, I believe, is operating on the basis of believing in God's word. Why? Because in Deuteronomy, God had said something to his people. God established a covenant with his people. He promised them, if you walk with me, if you have relationship with me, if you obey me, there will be blessing upon blessing upon blessing. But if you reject me, if you turn from me, if you reject this walk and you begin to turn to other gods and worship other gods, God speaks of the judgment that he would bring. Listen to what he said in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 through 17, as one of the judgments that would come as they reject God. He said this, beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them, or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And listen to the result. And he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit. You will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. In other words, Elijah understood that God had said, if you reject me, if you compromise and turn to other gods, if you do your own thing and reject a relationship with me, one of the judgments is that God would bring a drought on the land. And what is Elijah confronting with Ahab? He's saying, Ahab, the drought is coming. What conviction did he have? He had a conviction that God's word is true, but that's not all. He had a third conviction. And that third conviction is this. He believed strongly that the almighty God of heaven answers prayer. Do you believe that God answers prayer? Do do you believe that? My, My question then for us is this. If we truly believe that God answers prayer, then how is that influencing our prayer life today? Some have debated about how Elijah could go to Ahab and say, it's not going to rain on the earth until I say so. But where did that come from? Look at James chapter five, verses 16, I'm sorry, verses 17 through 18. The Bible lets us in on a glimpse for just a moment about how Elijah got to this point. Listen to what the scripture says, and I'll let you be the verdict of it. James five, verses 17 through 18 tells us something interesting. It says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Pause for just a moment. 
He faced the same struggles, temptations, challenges, distractions, burdens, and weights that all of us have experienced. He was a man of of nature just like ours. Listen to this. And he prayed earnestly. The idea here is continually. It's intentionally. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. Listen to the result. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Go back to 1 Kings 17. You know what the Bible's telling us as a background? Here it is. Elijah knew God was the living God of heaven. He believed his word that God would bring judgment through drought if the people turned from him. And he prayed according to the will of God. God, would you bring your judgment that God's people, your people, might return to you. In other words, he had a conviction about God and his word and prayer. My question for us this morning is this, do we have the same? If we truly believe that God answers prayer, then are we praying earnestly? If we truly believe that God answers prayer, then how are we praying for our spouse? And how are we praying for our children? If we truly believe that God answers prayer, how are we praying for our neighborhood? How are we praying for our church? How are we praying for our country? How are we praying for our president? How are we praying for a move of God across the world today? How are we praying? Are we praying like Elijah did? There was a conviction that took place in Elijah's trust in God. But not only was there a conviction, secondly, I want you to see this, there was a surrender. There was a surrender. I love this illustration as Elijah is believing God's word and is praying accordingly. But ultimately, he surrendered to God's will. Think about that connection between prayer and surrender, and I'm reminded of the lighthearted illustration about the little boy one day who was getting ready for Christmas and he was so excited as his grandparents were coming to visit for Christmas. And they came into town a few days early and they were there visiting, having a wonderful time. And at the end of the first day, it was time to go to bed and little Timmy was being put to bed by his mother and he looked at his mother and he said, Mama, can I pray tonight? And she said, oh, absolutely, Timmy, you go ahead and pray. So he began to pray and he poured his little heart out to God and and then he began to tell God what he really, really, really was asking for. He said, oh God, would you please let me get a bicycle for Christmas? Oh God, would you please let me get a bicycle for Christmas? And he continued on, oh God, please let me get a bicycle. He got loud and louder and louder in his request before God. Finally, he closed in prayer and his mother said, sweetie, that was a passionate prayer. He said, thank you. And then she looked at him and she said, but you know, you don't have to pray so loud. God's not deaf. And he quickly looked back at her and he said, I know mama, but granddaddy is and he's in the other room. I'm not suggesting that we can manipulate God, but I am suggesting that we need to pray in confidence and we need to pray in faith. But ultimately, in the end, we must surrender to his plan and will. Please understand in this moment, Elijah is believing the word of God. He's praying accordingly. But in the end, he now has a choice to make. God says, I've got a word for you, Elijah. And listen to what it is, verse two. The word of the Lord came to him, verse three. Go away from here, God says, Turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. Time out. This is a major curveball. Elijah, when he stood before Ahab, he had gotten his first assignment from God. He goes and he stands before Ahab and he says, Ahab, thus says the Lord, this is what God's about to do. From man's perspective, This was the perfect time for Elijah's ministry to be furthered. 
Elijah's name would begin to be heard throughout the region. No doubt people would want to stand with him. And so this is the perfect time for Elijah to move forward. It would make sense from man's perspective that God has brought Elijah this first step. Elijah's been obedient. And so now God's going to bless him. I mean, after all, Elijah had risked his life. After all, Elijah did exactly what he was called to do. And so surely God's going to bless him, right? And God's word comes and says, now get away from here. Weird. I don't know about you, but I don't do so well with the curveballs in life. Do you? I've never done well with a curveball. Even when I played baseball way back in the day, 14 and 15 years old, I could not adjust to a curveball to save my life. Just couldn't adjust to the speed. It looked different. I just couldn't adjust to it at all. And so my coaches tried to modify the game plan about my strengths, not my weaknesses. But the fact of the matter is in life, I don't typically do well with curveballs either. This is not what Elijah was anticipating. This is not what he was hoping for. There's no doubt in my mind, Elijah had a million questions in this moment. It seems so odd that God would use Elijah in a significant way and then, from man's perspective, banish him to some place of isolation. If we were in Elijah's shoes, we'd be asking, God, what is the point of all this? Why am I here? Why can't I spend time with others? Why are you punishing me by sending me away? God, is this the thanks I get for obeying you? God, what in the world are you doing right now? The fact of the matter is there are times that we go through seasons in life that are challenging. Circumstances and adversities that we simply do not understand. And it's in those moments that we have all sorts of questions because there are so many unknowns. And yes, there are times that we go through trials and circumstances because we have sinned against God and God in the midst of those circumstances is convicting and he's drawing us to a a place of repentance and restoration so that we can be in right relationship with him. But there are other times when it's not about correction. It's just about God molding and shaping and equipping us. James chapter one tells us literally we're to count it all joy when we face all sorts of trials and circumstances. Why? Because God is molding us and he's shaping us to be a perfect, and and the perfect there does not mean sinless. It means to be whole, to be healthy, to be complete, that we'll be literally the perfect man or woman, lacking in nothing. God is molding and he's shaping. Our response simply then is this, that we must surrender to God's will. God says, go away from here. We must trust him and surrender to him. There are many times in our life that we face Cherith Brook experiences where God is calling us away from the crowd and he's calling us away from the busyness and he's causing, calling us away from the hassle so that we are in right relationship with him so that he can mold us and shape us in the ways that he wants to do. One writer said it this way, the Cherith Brook experiences that you face are brought to you by the divine sovereign plan of God. You may not understand it. You probably wouldn't have picked it. You may not even like it, but God has a plan and a purpose that you can't see yet. We can resist it. We can reject it. We can fuss and cuss and complain, but the bottom line is God calls us to trust him and to surrender to his will. What's the end result of surrender? The end result of surrender is not lip service. The end result of surrender is not just loud singing. The end result of surrender is not putting on a spiritual face and coming to church on Sunday. The end result of surrender to God is always obedience. That's why the Bible to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. 
In other words, there will be times in our life that God calls us into a season. He calls us into a situation that we can't figure out completely. We don't understand why God's called us to it. We don't understand why the suffering is so real. We don't understand the hardship of it all. And what God is calling us to do in that moment is to trust him and to obey whatever he has put upon us to do. It's like Peter in Luke chapter five when Jesus looked at him and he said, Peter, Go out into the deep and let out your nets for a catch. If you remember that story in Luke chapter five, Peter looked at him and he said, but master, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing. In other words, it makes no sense for us to do that, Jesus. We've already been fishing. We've already tried our best. We've already done what we could. That doesn't even make sense. But then he concludes in Luke chapter five, verse verse five, the latter part, here's what he says. But, because you say so, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. There are times that God calls us to do something that may not make sense to us, but because he's the master and he's the Lord and we trust him, we can and should obey. We see this conviction, we see this surrender, which leads to a third thing. A third thing that trusting God demands of us, and this might be the most challenging for all of us. It's the word dependence. It demands dependence on our part. In our culture, we like to think of ourselves as independent. I can do it. I've got it. I cannot tell you the number of times I have sat down in a, in a situation of counseling or in a situation of grief or just sitting down with a friend who's going through the most horrendous time in life and someone will say, but, but it's all good, nothing I can't handle. And I know they mean well in that statement. In our nature, we like to think that we can handle it on our own. Fact of the matter is, is when it comes to God's plan, while many of us would say, yes, we want God's plan, the fact is we often live as if our plans are more concrete and dependable than God's. But God was bringing Elijah to a place of utter and total dependence upon him. Elijah, get up, go to the brook Cherith, and here's what's going to happen, Elijah. I want you to go to the brook, and I want you to wait. I want you to sit there. I want you to chill. I want you to wait. Elijah, I want you to go to the brook and just be there. And here's what's going to happen, Elijah. I'm going to take care of you. In fact, I'm going to bring the ravens, even though this is completely against their nature. I'm going to take the ravens and they're going to bring you meat and they're going to bring you bread. And they're not just going to do it on a daily basis. They're going to do it in the morning and they're going to do it in the evening. And you're going to have the brook chair there to drink from. You're going to have everything you need. Now, to be clear, this is not steak and potatoes, but it's what he needed. This is not a stockpile of food, but it's what he needed. Not only day by day, But moment by moment, I'm going to take care of you. What God is saying to Elijah in this moment is this. Elijah, I know you're not going to have anything in the eyes of the world. I know it's going to feel in the process of you being alone, in the process of you being quarantined. I know it's going to feel like you have no contact with the outside world. But here's what I want you to know, Elijah. I'm going to meet with you there, and I am more than enough. The old song that used to be sang when I was a child, speaking from God to man, said it this way, when you come to the place that I'm all you have, there you'll find I'm all you need. 
God is saying to Elijah, Elijah, I know this is odd. I know this is not what you expected. I know you don't understand. I know you don't know how long. I know you're not gonna have contact with the outside world, but I want you to know, just go to the brook. I'm gonna meet with you there. I'm gonna take care of you there and I will meet your needs. For Some of us in our life today, we need to be reminded that God is more than enough. But God, how's this gonna happen? He's more than enough. But God, when's it gonna happen? God's more than enough. We must depend upon him. We may not understand his plan or even like the process, but we can depend upon him, trusting that he is good and that he will take care of his children. Elijah was there at the brook, scholars tell us today, for over a year, up to two years. And there at that brook Cherith, God continually took care of his servant, which tells us something. If you're a child of God, never forget this. God always knows right where you are. And not only know where you are, he meets your needs. But second thing I want you to see is this. What it demands of us, it demands conviction about God. It demands a surrender to his will. And it demands this incredible opportunity as we consider what God is doing to depend upon him. But I want you to see secondly, when we trust God, I want you to find and see what we discover about God. Now, I want to encourage you this week, if you've got 25, 30 minutes driving around town or whatever else you're doing this week, go back on our website, crossingva.com, look at the sermon on July the 12th, and listen to the first 25 minutes of Brother Richard's message. Because he does a wonderful job describing God's miraculous provision for Elijah in this moment. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. But I do want, to see for, want us to see this morning what we discover when we trust God from this passage of Scripture. The first thing I want to say to you that we discover is this. We discover God's protection. We discover God's protection. I love how the Scripture tells us that God did not just say to Elijah, Elijah, go to the brook Cherith. I'm going to meet with you there and provide for you. That's not all that he said. What did he say in verse 3? He said, Elijah, go away from here and turn eastward, and here's the key word, and hide yourself. Hide yourself. Now, I know that we have different ages and life stages represented here today, but I would imagine we all know what the word hide means. The idea here is that you're getting out of sight, right? When you were a child, when I was a child, I imagine we all played a game called what? Hide and seek. We've all played the game before. Somebody counts and they count to 10 or 100 or whatever the number is. And then they turn around and say, ready or not, here I come. And their goal is to find everyone who is hiding. It's a simple little game. It's a fun little game. But I want to share with you one of my experiences with that game that will shed light on what God is doing here. What God is doing to Elijah, Elijah doesn't know all that's going on. He doesn't know what's about to happen in the world around him. All he knows is that God is saying, Elijah, go and hide. But what Elijah didn't realize is this. In obeying the command of God, God was protecting him and giving him a peace that the outside world at the moment knew nothing of. Let me illustrate that. Several years ago, my family and I lived in Christiansburg, Virginia, and while we were there, um, the, the Lord bless our time, but in our time there, specifically in 2011, we moved into a, a, a country type of farmhouse, if you will, and it had a lot of land and it, it had a creek in the back that was always flowing and there was a mountain behind that. And it was beautiful, but with that beauty, that kind of oasis, if you will, there were also some risks involved. You never knew what animals you were gonna see on the mountain. 
Um, I saw more snakes than I ever want to see again for the rest of my life, okay? So it's just how it is. And so we loved it. We enjoyed our time there as a family. But at the same time, there were, there were also times that we were very mindful of the dangers that were there. We were also fairly close to a, a busily traveled road. And so we saw lots of cars come by. And that's our environment in the background for this illustration. I remember several years ago now, it was the afternoon and Lane had been born. Lane was our baby. And um, Heather told me, hey, I need to run some errands in town. And so I'm going to be gone for a few hours. Can you watch the kids? I said, absolutely. So I'm watching the kids and Lane, she's asleep. And so I've got some time with our oldest three kids. And I determined the best way to use that time was to play hide and seek. So everybody knows the rules of hide and seek. You find a place. And so I got all the kids, the, the older three kids together. And I said, now here's, I got one rule for our hide and seek. Nobody can go outside the house right? Because there's all kinds of different things in the yard I don't have, and, and I'm going to be close to the baby. And so this is not going to work. Nobody can go outside the house. They all agreed. And we began our game of hide and seek. We played three or four rounds, five rounds. I'm not sure. And finally, the time came for me to be the one to count. And so I counted out loud. And sure enough, I turned around and I said, ready or not, here I come. And I began going through the house looking for the kids. It did not take long at all to find the boys because they have no sense of hiding. I'm just terrible. But I could not find Gracie. And, and at this time, I mean, Gracie, was, she was really small. And I went through her room. I looked in her closet. I looked in her bathroom. I looked through the boys' room. I looked through the basement, looked through the garage. I couldn't find her anywhere. So five minutes, not that big of a deal, goes by. Ten minutes go by, and you're hollering out, and you can't find your little girl. As a parent, it gets, gets get a little hairy, if you will. And so I remember, I mean, I went through the whole house, every bit of it I could find for like I don't know, two or three times, and I still couldn't find Gracie. And by now, like, I'm not even worried about the fact that Lane is sleeping. I'm like screaming out, Gracie, Gracie, where are you, Gracie? And finally, it dawned on me, you know what? Of all my kids that have a hard time following rules, I bet she went outside. So I went through the yard. I went through our little barn. I went through our chicken pen. I went down to the creek. I, I mean, I'm telling you, by the time like 30 and 45 minutes goes by and I can't find her, I'm in a full-blown panic. You know what I'm talking about, parents? I'm, I'm literally, I, I went up on the road and I'm walking along the road and calling for her as if I was calling for a pet that had run away. I mean, like, it was a desperate moment. And I'm praying, like, God, please let me find her. I'm already thinking in my mind, if Heather comes back right now, I'm dead. Like, <laughs> dead. I went back inside the house and I sat down and I'm literally like, racking my brain where she could be. And I don't know why I did this, but I decided to go back into her room. And instead of just looking around her room, this time I decided to climb the ladder of her bunk bed. And when I did, well, I couldn't see it from the ground because she was so skinny and so little at that time. But when I went up to the top of that bunk bed, even though there were all these stuffed animals on top, I just took her comforter and yanked it back. To which I found my skinny, precious little angel Gracie Lay. I don't know. She somehow had shimmied underneath the sheet and the comforter and the stuffed animals and nothing had moved. It was unbelievable. And when I did, I quickly realized she had been sound asleep the whole time. She had hidden and was completely sound asleep. Of course, I couldn't be upset with her. She had hidden and in the process was tired and fell asleep. She had, I mean, what seemed like an eternity to me, I was in absolute panic and just terrified of thinking of all these things of what possibly could have happened. And the entire time, she literally was perfectly at rest. Here's Elijah. Elijah doesn't know in this moment 
that outside of the brook Cherith, Ahab and Jezebel had issued a decree to kill all the prophets of God. Elijah didn't know how badly the famine was affecting all these people and all these situations. Elijah didn't know. He, had, he didn't have the, the email. He didn't have the news of the day. He didn't know all these different things. All he knew is that he was safely in the right in the center of God's will. God was protecting him. Secondly, we discover not only God's protection, but we discover God's purpose. I'm going to move quickly, but notice what happens next. What is the whole point of all this? Why would God send Elijah to a hidden brook, if you will? Why would God do this in a time when it would make sense to us to go ahead and put Elijah forward, let his ministry be furthered here? God, there's still work to be done, and there was work to be done. Why did all this unfold? What was God doing there? I don't know that we can answer all of the questions. I'll kind of summarize it in just a moment, but I would say to us this morning that God had a very unique purpose for this moment in time in Elijah's life. It's interesting to me that of all the brooks that God could have called him to, at all the locations that God could have said, go there, God called him to a brook simply known as the brook Cherith. If you're studying the Old Testament, you quickly begin to realize that many times that God uses specific locations and names. If you study the meaning of those names, you get a glimpse of why he was doing this. For example, the word cherith in the Hebrew literally means this. It means to cut away. To cut away. That sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? You know what God's doing in Elijah's life while he's at the brook? He's pruning in this moment where Elijah is alone with God, Elijah has no one else to talk to. He has no one else to learn from. He has no one else to share his burdens with. Literally, God is putting in a place where it seems like isolation. It seems like a, a quarantine. God's putting him in a place in the midst of it all where God is having his undivided attention. All the distractions are gone. All the berries are gone. All the other people are gone. It's just him and God. And right there, guess what God's doing? God's molding and he's shaping and he's moving and he's removing to make Elijah the man that God wants him to be. You know, it's, we sang a, that song a moment ago where we said, my heart needs a surgeon. Most of us like the surgeons that come in for the purpose of hopefully bringing about healing, but normally before there to be healing, usually there has to be something removed. Many of us have talked about this season of quarantine and this season of challenge, especially from mid-March to, to mid-June. And we've talked about how it was so nice to be able to slow down in the midst of life. It was so nice to have such a change of pace because in the midst of that, God was working on us to show us all the other distractions that we had allowed into our life. How for many of us, the busyness of life and all the different things and all the responsibilities and all the coming and all the going and all the doing, how that had become a hindrance in many ways in our relationship with the Lord. What God is doing in this moment is he's bringing Elijah to a place where he's equipping him and molding him and shaping him, cutting away even the things that would be a hindrance to his ministry. Let me ask you a question this morning. What is it in your life that God is calling you 
to cut away? What are the areas of your life that are a hindrance in your relationship with the Lord? What are the areas of your life that are hindering you from serving the Lord? As a ministry, part of God's calling as, as the pastor and as the pastor's counsel on our team here is it continually asking God, what is it that you're wanting to do and what is it that stands in the way? What are the hindrances? What are the things that you need to address and deal with so that we can move forward to be the vessel in the church that you would have us to be? God is bringing Elijah to the brook Cherith to mold him and to shape him, which brings me to the final point, and that is this. It's all about God's preparation. I want to remind us this morning that Jesus himself said in John chapter 15, verse 2, that every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. The purpose of the pruning is because God is preparing it to be more productive and fruitful. God was preparing Elijah the whole time. The fact is that God had greater things in store for Elijah. There was more that God wanted to do in him and through him and for him than Elijah could see in the moment. So guess what happens? Verse 7. Elijah is depending upon God. God is providing meat and bread through the ravens. God is providing water through the brook. Verse 7. Here's another curveball. We'll pick it up next week. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. You know what's interesting? The brook dries up, but Elijah doesn't fear. He doesn't panic. He doesn't worry. He doesn't have a woe is me God moment. No. He just trusts and he waits on the Lord. There are times in our life even in our obedience to God, where things go sideways. There are times in our life that it seems that curveballs are coming from every corner. There are times in our life of uncertainties and unknowns and trials galore. There are times in our life that even places of production and fruit dry up. What I want to say to you this morning is this, that the same God who called us to the brook to take care of us is the same God when the brook dries up. God was not done with Elijah. And can I say to you, friend, he is not done with you. He's not done with you. My hope and prayer today is for every single one of us in our life, we will recognize that God, in the midst of all the craziness in the world around us, or maybe even within our own hearts and lives, that God is faithful, that God is good, and that he can be trusted. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, God says it this way. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Many stop right there, but listen to the next verses. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and listen to God's promise, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. The point of trusting God's plan is not to just throw up our hands and say, eh, God's got a plan. I hope it all works out. No. Knowing that God has a plan should call us to a personal relationship with him where we come to him, we cry out to him, we seek him in his will, and we follow him every step of the way. So my questions for you really are twofold today.
first question is this. Do you have a relationship with God? That relationship begins the very moment you call upon Jesus to save your soul. Do you have a relationship with God? And secondly, if you do, today, will you surrender and trust God? No matter the circumstance, no matter the difficulty, no matter the unknown, will you surrender to God and trust him? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning and for the time we have together. Thank you for the way that you speak to our hearts and lives. Thank you for the way that you teach us through, through so many different ways. But in this case today, through the life and through the illustration of Elijah. God, you called him to do something that seems uh, so strange. God, when he could have been going to others and ministering to others and doing all these things, it was in that exact moment that you called him away, away from the crowd and away from the distractions and all those different things. And it was there in that moment, God, that you met with him. You drew him closer. You molded him. You shaped him. You equipped him to be the man that you wanted him to be that he would accomplish the work that you'd called him to do. Father, I thank you that you work in each of our lives to call us to a relationship with you. And God, I thank you that in that relationship, even though it may not be what we want, God, you always know what is best. You know what is needed to mold us and to shape us so that you get the glory from our lives. So Father, I pray today that we will trust you In all things, we will trust you and surrender to your plan. Father, for those who know Christ as their Savior, I pray that today would be a day of comfort and a day of assurance and a day of renewed surrender and obedience to you. Father, for those who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, God, I pray today that you would give them an urgency. Lord, we we often think that we've got all these years ahead of us. Lord, when we look around the world around us today, we are reminded that life is so fragile and so uncertain. So God, today may there be a burning conviction in their heart and life to confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.